Good morning, everyone. It's Ruth Mitchell, editor of The Wholesaler Magazine, coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. I'm really excited to be bringing to you our guest today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Donald McNeely, who's chairman and CEO of Chicago Tube and Iron Company, as well as a professor at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering. Chicago Tube and Iron is a distributor and fabricator with engineering services and was founded in 1914 on Chicago South Side. The company has posted 105 years of consecutive profitability, which has provided the capital for continued growth and job creation. Together with Olympic Steel, they have 34 locations throughout the United States and Mexico, with 4.2 million square feet of processing facilities. The company has been in the Wholesaler Magazine's top 100 distributor listing for many years, and at the helm is Dr. McNeely. Greetings, Don, and welcome to Off the Cup. I've got my coffee here and I'm ready to jump in. Well, thank you, Ruth. I appreciate being part of this program and thank you for your continued advocacy for our industry. We much appreciate your input, your guidance. Well, with your guidance, I'm able to do so. That's for sure. You know, Don, there's so much to talk about right now. And what I really love is, you know, companies that are 100 plus years old. I love the history about it. Can you give me a brief history on the company and what was the business climate like for Chicago Tube and Iron when we started this year? So it's, as you heard me from behind the podium before, business launches are interesting no matter what year they occur. And the data points that I often reference are 40% of all businesses fail in the first generation, another 44 in the second, and it continues to diminish as time goes on. And just kind of cutting to the chase, one out of every 100 business launches ever makes it to its centennial. So there's so many in the PBNF industry that are in that rarefied air. We're certainly proud to be one of them. As you said in the introduction, founded on Chicago's South Side in the traditional and historic back of the yards neighborhood. You remember the Chicago history, you're a Chicago and yourself. The old meatpacking district has portrayed in Upton Sinclair the jungle. But people in that neighborhood are hard fought. They're scrappers, as described by Mike Reichel in his syndicated columns. And we're just very proud to come from that geography. Our company was founded on solid capitalistic principles. You know, we open the door every day to earn a profit. We are unabashed about that being our goal. We want to do it with the safety of our employees first and foremost, but we need to create profit to keep the doors open. We think fundamental obligations or opportunities of private enterprise, job creation, and it takes profitability to do that. So we were founded on solid capitalistic principles, and we've held true to those principles over many, many decades. And those decades have included, you know, two world wars, what we call non-wars with Korea and Vietnam, you know, 12 major recessions, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, if you will, and a number of black swan events, including what we're going through right now. So it's a hard history, and we're certainly very proud of it. And at the end of the day, the adherence to those principles has, as you have referenced, posted 150 years of profitability. Well, I mean, the company definitely has weathered the storm. And like you said, you had just talked about many things that had taken place over the last hundred years that one could challenge a company Two, quite frankly, you wonder how you could survive three or more, which leads me into, you know, to quote you in your most recent column in the Wholesaler magazine is this black swan event. You know, we have to talk about, you know, the plunge in the oil market that we saw yesterday with prices going negative for the first time. I don't know if that's unprecedented or if that's happened before, but can you talk to me about what's going on and, you know, what's going to happen down the line here, short term and long term? 
Well, certainly dry, and boy, your podcast here is current because that was yesterday in this morning's headline. And to answer your question, the onset, it is unprecedented. This is a historic all-time low oil pricing. Let me back up and try to lay the foundation, though, because you referenced appropriately so the Black Swan event. You know, the Black Swan theory, a lot of people really don't understand it, but it was the creation and developed by a Professor Taleb, who also was a trader on Wall Street. If you go back to the history of this Black Swan concept, you know, prior to the year 1697, genetically, black swans didn't exist. So that ended up the metaphor of describing something that is virtually and at that time literally impossible. So from its definition, and just think of that in the framework of what's going on today, a black swan describes something that's an unexpected event. It's something that's going to have a high profile. It's going to have a major effect on a country or the world with severe consequences. And they're also things that are hard to predict. And thus, typically, a society or a company or a leader is unprepared for. But when the Black Swan event is over, the pundits often attempt, inappropriately so, to rationalize them with the benefit of hindsight. So when you think of previous Black Swan event, think of World War One, totally unexpected. The collapse of the Soviet Union with President Reagan tearing down that wall. And then, of course, in our lifetime, 9-11 and currently this COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we started the year with a good, solid first quarter. We had a great 2019 and segueing into 2020, first quarter was solid. And then our current Black Swan event hit. So specifically to your question on oil, oil and steel, and by extension, steel includes PB&F, and steel by extension includes the metals market and the alloy. But they're kind of a mutual dependency. Let me talk about steel first and then segue over to the energy sector. So right now, steel pricing is down. 18% from just three weeks ago. 18% from three weeks ago. Wow. Steel pricing is down 50% of where it was in July of 2018. So just think of those two metrics for a moment. That is profoundly devastating. And then if you look at a steel mill, we can argue whether it is an electric arc furnace, a mini or an integrated producer. You know, you're breaking even somewhere around 80% capacity utilization. In 2019, the steel industry operated at 80% capacity utilization, right? We are operating at 56% capacity utilization. So those aren't recessionary type numbers, Ruth. They're really depressionary type numbers. So now think for a moment, the big markets for steel. Well, one is automobile production. As we both know, that is literally shut down, not figuratively, but literally shut down. Nothing's happening automobiles. The automobile production not only consumes a lot of steel, it consumes a lot of energy, a lot of energy. The second market that's big for energy is certainly construction. I mean, who's plowing forward with major construction projects right now? So when you consume energy, you consume it in the production of automobiles, you consume it in the production of steel, you consume it in the production of construction, and all those are just reeling from this black swan event. So oil is continuing to cascade, and there's two other components I'd like to mention very quickly. You know, if you go down to West Texas to the Permian Basin, you know, it wasn't that many years ago where it was with the last person to leave, please turn out the lights. And then because of engineering innovation, we've developed this wonderful method of fracking. So we're able to go back into these fields that were at a point of dormancy. They were dormant, and we've got this ability to frack that shale and extract energy. We can extract gas and we can extract oil. And it's resulted in America being the number one producer and exporter of natural gas and oil in the world. 
in the world. So from a technology standpoint, you wonder if too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing because it's so efficient to frack now, the prices become so suppressed so compressed that some of the people that would traditionally invest really look at the value of gas, the price of oil, as to whether or not they're going to continue to fund it. In addition to that, couple it with the Saudis and the Russians going to war on oil culture. And so you almost have the very negative personal perfect storm. So right now, oil is really, the negative numbers really don't make sense because in effect, they would say, we're going to extract natural gas and oil from the ground and we'll pay you to take it. So I think right now, the current pricing has a big emotional, psychological overreaction to everything going on. I think it'll normalize, but it's going to normalize obviously at a positive number, but it's certainly not going to be a positive number. It's not going to be a positive number for a while. That's an interesting outlook. I'm sorry, I've I've been writing notes like crazy here. You've given me so much to think about. And I guess my first question to you, Don, would be, say COVID wasn't in the picture right now. Say it ended tomorrow and everybody went back to work in next month. How long do you think it's going to take before we're able to recover from this, at least on the oil side? Well, the number negative right now, negative number, again, don't want to be redundant, but really suggest if you step back, you know, I'm going to go out in that field, I'm going to get some oil, and then I want to pay you to take it off my hands. So the fact that that number is negative is where that psychological overreaction comes from. The number will return to a positive atmosphere, but the positive number, not having a negative in front of it, will not be an attractive number for some time to come. So energy, which is pretty important to PB&F, is not going to come back until the economy comes back. I mean, if you look at causation and correlation, if you've got a statistical background, they are two different things. Causation and correlation are two different things. But if you look at the energy sector, it correlates pretty closely with the GDP. So you might say, as goes the GDP, in other words, as goes the economy, so goes the energy sector, as goes the energy sector, so goes a significant portion of the PBF community. So at the end of the day, we need to get people back to work. We need to get the economy back on track, and then everything else should follow suit. So top what's happening in oil, we'll top that with COVID. You know, that that wrecks havoc, obviously, on so many different companies. Let's talk about Chicago Tube and Iron. You know, once COVID hit and changes were being made, what was done internally at your company to keep the business up and running? So we're always profitable because we run debt-free, so we don't need to worry about servicing that debt. Uh, We have a DNA that has us kind of galvanized around profitability and success, but it was like flying the plane right into the wall. So we're coming off of a series of very good, solid years. One of the interesting things about our industry, and you've now spent enough time in it, you know, if you really step back in our cyclic industry or any cyclic industry, over any decade, you're going to have two years where you're knocking the cover off the ball. You're printing money. You're going to have two years where you're convinced you're going out of business. And then the other six years are going to be just okay. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of our industry. So the economy was in its 11th year of growth. So we're overdue for a bear market, but earnings continue to improve. They were supporting those lofty Wall Street values. I mean, my goodness, we had the Dow Jones near 30,000 and we will once again return and then beyond that. But I don't think it's going to occur in this year, but perhaps over the next 18 or 24 months. So what we did at Chicago Tube Iron is we did post a good last year and we got off to a great start this year. So what is happening is our business right now is off about 16%. 
We think that has the potential of being off as much as 20 to 25%, and we are structuring our cost accordingly. Fortunately for us, about 20 months ago, we embarked on a rather detailed strategic planning process. You know, how do we want to look in the future? What do we want to be when we grow up? You know, as great hockey player Wayne Gretzky once says, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So rather than sit around and patting ourselves on the back because we had 106 years of profound success, that's good and bad. The bad of it is people tend to perhaps think that we're invincible, that we're, we're not vulnerable, and we certainly are. So in that process, part of the strategic plan was to, in effect, find operational efficiencies. And what operational efficiencies is, the euphemism for simply saying, let's do more with less. Right. So in order to really harvest new and deeper efficiencies in the organization. So a lot of the cost reset that you would normally be scrambling to do during this Black Swan event, about 80% of that we had behind us. So that doesn't mean to imply that we haven't had to take some drastic actions we have, but most of what people are scrambling to do now, we were very blessed to have most of that behind us as part of that strategic planning process. Well, part of that strategic plan, I know, has to include two of the most important things, your employees and your customers. How is Chicago Tube and Iron supporting its employees during this time? So at the end of the day, there's only one thing that trumps profitability and integrity and ethics here. And and I think when you talk about profitability, if you have a moral compass, you know, in integrity and having a value system is embedded in your culture. The only thing that trumps is safety, the safety of our employees. When we think of safety, we just don't want amputations. We don't want somebody getting killed. We don't want somebody getting hurt. We want to take our employees and send them home in the same condition, if not better than they arrived in the morning. So because of this COVID, it's interesting that most of us leaders in the industry, you know, we have an accounting background or a finance background or marketing or communications. You know, we don't have biology and chemistry backgrounds. So this is kind of uncharted waters for a lot of our readers. And I think what I have seen is the good that will come out of this is I've seen people that are good, legitimate leaders that absolutely are standing and delivering all throughout our industry. And I think what we're outing right now is people that were just masquerading as leaders. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing people that are over-responding. I'm seeing people that are under-responding. But fortunately for the majority of people that I see in our industry, they're standing and they're delivering. So I'm pretty proud of the industry right now. To the specifics of what we've done, 90% of our office personnel are now sheltered at home. They are all working full-time. They're working from their home. We don't want them coming in if they're not comfortable coming in. The few people that we do have coming in, we're checking their temperature every morning. We are making sure that we are honoring the commitments of distancing. Everybody's been pretty good. We haven't had to police that. We had the good fortune of being categorized as an essential employer. So all of our plants are operating. And when you get out in the plant, it's a little bit easier to affect social distancing. But anybody in our plants that is not comfortable coming to work, they don't have to. The people that are sheltered at home and working, they are enjoying full pay and full benefits. And each day, you know, we're having a chalk talk at 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, reviewing on what all those shelters and employees have done this very day this very day. So we are absolutely looking at safety when we have somebody that ends up with what is perceived to be the flu or a cough or not feeling well. We absolutely not just react, but probably overreact to make sure that everyone is comfortable. 
as you know, Ruth, if you look at the stock market, everybody's got a different risk tolerance. That's why some people are buying high beta, very volatile stocks, and other people want all their money in a mutual fund. It's the same thing with your health. So right now, we're trying to be sensitive to each individual's risk tolerance and make sure we can accommodate them. And so far, we've been successful in doing that. So I'm going to ask you this question, and I love this one because for you, this applies in two different areas. Obviously, you're running Chicago Tube and Iron, but you're also a professor at Northwestern University. So you're wearing dual hats here. Can you share with me any tips on how you remain productive in your new work environment? Yeah, I don't like the new work environment. You know, we are an industry that I think is high touch, high feel. I think I describe our entire industry, as you know better than most, you've been to all the conferences. It's a collaborative industry. And I think you've got veterans and you've got new people. You know, everybody in the bullpen, if you will, works in a cubicle, very nice cubicle. But you can stand up and ask the question of your neighbor right over the wall. Right. And a lot of times, even though we have a very exhaustive formal training program, which you're aware of, you learn a lot by osmosis, just kind of being in that moment where you have that opportunity to get called into a conference room or just overhear a conversation that you learn from. So we've lost that. And I think that's critical to the success of our industry and our company. So I don't like that component, but I do know that this too shall pass. I do know that that situation is temporary. The issue for me as a leader, I think, is I think people are going to be very, I think it's going to be very binary. I think people that have longed to work at home and have the perceived flexibility are going to fall in love with it. And when business comes back, they're going to be reluctant to come back and work in the office. But they're going to have to come back to work in the office, given the nature of our business. Other people are going to find out it's nowhere near what they thought it would be. Right. And I think now that we're in the fourth week of that shelter in place, especially if you've got kids at home that aren't going to school. Mm -hmm. I know for my own daughters, I think those walls are getting smaller and smaller. (laughs) And I think if they said if science doesn't find a cure for COVID pretty quick, some stay-at-home mothers will because they're at their end. So I'm seeing the stress even within my own daughters and any stay-at-home mom. I just respect the hell out of them. You know, leadership at CTNI, we're coming in every day because if the plant is working, I think good leaders manage not only the finances, but you manage the optics. And if they're on site working, they better see us on site working. And we're walking through the plant. We're making sure we're talking to everybody. But that's one of the challenges, I think, when people come back. There's going to be some challenges that we have to navigate. In terms of the academic environment, I teach the capstone class in the graduate engineering program. So my students, Ruth, are getting a master's in engineering management, a master's in project management, or a PhD in material science. And the reason I teach that capstone class is often the masters need a thesis and the PhDs need a dissertation. So I bring them into our company or I bring them into our industry. And that's a way for our entire industry to have access to free research that's validated. And number two, potential talent down the line. So for the first time in my 30-year academic career, my course is being taught online. And it's going well, but I don't like it. You know, the students are enjoying it. I think the students as well would prefer to be in the classroom. So it is very, very challenging. Well, I completely agree with what you're talking about. It's the interaction in our industry that makes it so wonderful and so vibrant, too. I agree with you on going nuts staying at home. I find myself here in the office more often than not just to have some type of interaction, if even it's with a postman that is knocking at the door. 
Oh, come. Did you hear about alcohol consumption is up as well? <laughs> I, I know, which is why I needed to get out of the house, Dawn. Absolutely. Hey, I want to end this on, I have two quick points to bring up. I'm always the look for the silver lining in every situation. So my first question to you is, can you tell me about any projects that the company is involved in, such as a mobile hospital or what's taking place here to help in the situation that we're in? Yeah, let me, let me pivot to that because you asked a question earlier that I didn't respond to and said, what are we doing to work with our customers? And, you know, it's a simple answer and it's whatever they need. You know, I think right now we have an obligation to be as accommodative as we possibly can. They're going through issues right now. There's significant inventory in the channel that they're not consuming that we put in based upon their projections. We certainly can't hold them accountable for their projections. You know, they're in the same situation we are. Right. And you don't look to sell somebody for the next quarter, but rather the next quarter century. So I think right now we need to be very sensitive to what our customers' needs are because they're in the same mode we are. So nobody's getting pressured to take inventory that we put in for them. And we're getting more and more calls with people needing to stretch out the receivable so they get a government check or to some form of normalcy comes back. So I think we're always accommodative to customers, but probably more so now than ever before. The reason we're an essential employer is directly responsive to your question. So without naming names, we're a defense contractor. So we do work through our customers with the Department of Defense. That is clearly an essential industry. But we've picked up some projects lately that are directly related to the COVID-19 assault. And we are selling a customer that makes electrical panels. They've got a large contract with FEMA to power and provide the generation for some of these mobile hospitals. We are running full speed ahead with a medical manufacturer of beds. You know, if you come here to Chicago, as you know, Ruth, Governor Pritzker has converted McCormick Place to a mobile hospital. Mm-hmm. And I think they put 3,000 beds in there. Now, none of them are occupied, and I hope I can pivot to my thoughts on that before we exit stage left. But we've got a number of essential industries. So manufacturer of bed that you uses tubing and metals, manufacture of electrical panels that's using our product, PB&F, in that regard. Another big sector for us is utilities. We work very closely with utilities on a number of projects. And as you know, if they're putting up mobile hospitals and reconstituting hospitals that have been closed down, which is occurring right here in Elgin, you know, we're at the ready with that utility that's going to have to bring power to that structure. So, yeah, we're very much involved in the fight against this COVID virus. Well, it definitely sounds like your company is doing a lot to give back. I want to end with what you had just said about McCormick Place and the beds that are down there to take care of the COVID crisis in Chicago. Let me just express a little bit of my frustration. So I want to now step back because we've got such a great leadership team at PBF. You know, what's keeping me up at night really is frustration. You know, I'm very disappointed that the politicians cannot find a way to pursue solutions on a nonpartisan basis. I mean, politics are so divided these days. All we look to do is assign blame. And it's very disappointing to me that our purported leaders can't find a common enemy to galvanize around. And so if you look, the original prognostications were potentially a million deaths in America alone. We're right now at around 40,000, and that's 40,000 too many. One is one too many. So it might be only one, but you should never preface any death with only. Right. Because in some family, 100% of their dads or 100% of their spouses. But, you know, there are some realities and why we have to take care of our citizens' health. We must also understand we need to take care of their wealth. People need to work. 
people absolutely need to work. And as you've heard the outcry that we need to make sure that the cure is not worse than the disease, you're absolutely right. And I think if the government suggests things to help curb the growth, people will embrace them. I think by and large, people have embraced them. But when the government starts to mandate or overstep their authority, if you will, that's where you get the backlash. Look what's happening right now in Utah and Wyoming. Look what's happening next door in Michigan and New Jersey. The populace has perceived this government's overstepping. For example, when things become counterintuitive, people will bite back. I can walk my golf course, but I can't play golf. If I'm running the lake with my dog, people are getting pulled over when they're alone and being sighted. When people are saying you can go out in your canoe or you can't go out in your speedboat. It seems to be every day people are running these press conferences and it's almost a new sport room where they have a scoreboard up there with a death count. And even though you need to statistically make projections, you can make best case, worst case, and most probable case. I wonder if it's morally correct to present the worst case scenario day after day when the worst case scenario involves death. So I think what we're doing is just simply scaring the hell out of people. You know, in the normal course of life, 250,000 people die every month in America. Old age, disease, smoking, auto accidents, it happens. So I just think that we need to really reset, and I'm not sure if that's possible with all the divisiveness going on. But we need to get people back to work. I guess the best quote that I've read on this is by Abraham Lincoln. He said, and I quote, if this country is ever demoralized, it will come from trying to live without work. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to have the welfare freeloaders, and there's certainly plenty of those. But by and large, the typical American is wired to work. It's in their DNA. They want to work. If people want to work, we shouldn't keep it from them. So we've got to find a way to return the country back to work without jeopardizing health. And do I think that's a lofty goal that's unrealistic? I do not. I think with proper leadership, that can be achieved. But people need to get back to work. People do need to get back to work. And, you know, with that, Dawn, I'm going to say thank you for being a leader in essential industry and helping to guide everyone through this time, this black swan time, so to say. And, you know, I do believe that at the end of this, we will come out stronger one way or the other. And, you know, people joining together and banding together and spending time with family. This is a time that we'll never get back again to really concentrate and focus on what's important. So with that, I'd say thank you very much for your precious time today and doing our Off the Cuff podcast. And we look forward to seeing you sometime soon down the road in person. And again, as always, thank you, Ruth. And thank you for being the speaking in our industry. It's appreciated. Thank you, Don. Take care. Have a great day. Bye.